Sunday rap pod. Sitting on no fun in their squad. There they go, they the sons of God. What up, what up, what up? Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, welcome. This is Across the Intersection Podcast. This is AJ. I'm in here with the whole crew, Eve and A Swish, and Tina is in the building. As right. always, you can check out our podcast on divemedia.co. That is divemedia.co. As well as we are on all of the platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google, all of the places. And you can hit us up on the socials at This Is Dive Media. That is at This Is Dive Media. And I can be reached at Divinimous, D-I-V-E-N-O-M-O-U-S. Everyone, this is Eve. I can be reached on Twitter and Instagram at E to the V to the. Hey, everybody. What's up? What's up? This is Avery, Avery Smith. You can check me out at averygoodidea.com. Go check it out and uh, find out some very good ideas from yours truly. <laughs> and this is Tina. You can find me on Instagram and LinkedIn at Tina Clarice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have a special guest with us today, ladies and gentlemen. Very special guest. <laughs> Hailing all way, all the way from the NY Sizzle. Um, pastor, leader, brother, man of good standing in the community as well as in the house of God. <laughs> I'm giving him all the accolades here. Mr. Rasul Barry. Rasul, why don't you say hello to everyone who's listening and watching today? Yo, what's up? Brooklyn's in the building. Brooklyn's in the house. Glad to be here with y'all. Uh, and uh, yeah, looking to chop it up. Now, un- unlike my my co-host here, Russell, you actually still reside in the in the Big Apple. These these reformed New Yorkers here. I, I used to live in New York when I was a kid, but they I kind of let it go because I'm in D.C. now. They still be holding on to a strand of New York like, you know, because how we used to do in New York, you know. <laughs> oh, okay. And you you going on people from New York, but you claim in DC when you clearly live in Woo Hey brother, hey, 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 hey. You, you ain't got to give my did you wanna give my digits out too? I mean you you wanna give my street address? Come on, brother. Your location, uh negative one point zero nine eight seven six man. Mm. Anyhow. Um, I know Tina's dying laughing. T- Tina cracks up at my jokes, Marvin. See, she 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 uh, loves she she loves my jokes, Russell. So, anyhow, um, but we really want to get in. You know the the reason for uh, t- today's show. I was able to catch a uh, debate that you did recently with um, Neil Shenvey. It was mm-hmm. on um, what was it? What's the guy's show? I forget. Unbelievable. Yes, yeah, unbelievable podcast. Yeah, with the guy from um, Europe. Yeah, I remember. I, I listened to his podcast. Um, but so when I went through, I said, "Oh, I know Russell." So I listened to it. and I was I was blown away. And you made you know obviously some. It, it was a ver- it was a really good debate on both sides. I mean, Neil also had some good points as as well. Um, but there was a you know a critical statement that you made early in the show that I thought was so powerful that I think kind of sailed over Neil's head a little bit. Um, because it never got referred back to. It just kind of just kind of kept going. Oh, CRT is bad, and da 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 da. And your your statement was in reference, and I'm I'm loosely referring to it. So please um, elaborate where I'm messing it up here. But you said that you were just doing things. You went to College of Pennsylvania, and you were just doing things to advocate for justice and the like. And you begun to get labeled as these things by dominant culture that that was never your intent you were just like i'm the bible talks about justice i'm just here advocating for justice what do you mean i'm this and i'm that 
And I thought that that is some that is in, you know, a paradox that believers who happen to be African-American fall into at times because we may be just pursuing things that we know is clear in the Bible. But then dominant culture will come in and label us as something that we never were intending to, you know, be involved in. We were just kind of here doing, you know, what we feel like we were being led of God to do. So can you elaborate and kind of expound a little bit on that thought process? Sure, sure. Yeah. And just to um, so put it in context. So what I was saying was I went to the University of Pennsylvania. I studied my, my degree is in Africana studies and sociology. And I was also very involved. In, I was president of Black Student League, you know, very socially involved while I was a believer, leading uh, Bible study, founding one that, you know, was around and in existence for 20 years later. And um, but the ironic thing was at the time. So I'm talking about the late 90s, early 2000s. The world of social justice and evangelical Christianity were so far apart that they didn't really interact with each other at all. Right. So I just kind of was like almost could feel sometimes schizophrenic, you know what I mean, depending on which environment I was in. What I was so I didn't so so there was no criticism because there was no overlap back then. There were no categories. Right. And so then what happens is especially after the the murder of Trayvon Martin. Um, Mike Brown, uh, Sandra Bland, we, you know, like in the mid, you know, like 2014, 2015, 2016, I start leaning into these conversations again in, you know, the evangelical community. And at first there was more of like, I think it was such a profound moment in the culture that uh, at least those who were around me, I was living in the Midwest at the time, were like, okay, I'm trying to understand this or I'm just, I don't have any category for this. So I'm just living life. What I was describing in the podcast is what has actually happened since. I would say starting in about two years ago that um, it's almost like, you know, the, you know, when they say you shouldn't use antibacterials too much or antibiotics because the bacteria begins to develop, uh, you know, defenses, you know, against it. So you should only use antibiotics when you absolutely need it. Um, well, it was kind of like they developed some defenses all of a sudden <laughs> right. that began to. So actually, the situation today actually in some ways is more uh, problematic than it was when there was just a lack of awareness on the part of most local evangelical churches and things like that. Now there's actually hardened resistance. Right. And right. Um, and I've seen this evolve over time. So, but so in any case, I would be posting something like I had been in 2015 and 2016, 2017, 2019 comes around and people want to debate. And then I start seeing this, these letters, CRT, oh, this is CRT, that's CRT. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And so that's when I, at first I just kind of shook it off, ignored it, but, uh, or kind of just summarily dismissed it. Like, yo, I've been talking about this for a long time. But then when I started seeing it pick up steam, I did a deep dive I'm like, what is this thing that people keep, you know, characterizing it as? And uh, and that's when that led to the essay, first essay I wrote, Critical Grace Theory, um, which looked at the aspect of common grace and the fact that we always know how to eat the meat and spit out the bones, you know, when it comes to um, any idea that we 
that we come to, um, and even even church or theologian that we come to. Uh, and then the debate happened. And then after the debate, I started to really think about it differ- differently and go, what is causing this? Because this isn't just a a ideological faux pas or an or academic, there's something deeper. And that led to my second essay, uh, Uncritical Race Theory, which is basically me theorizing on what is it that is causing people to label and overly react and, and, and mischaracterize everything that is happening or every critique that exists um, of, of racial injustice as this sinister, uh, secular, socialist, you know, uh, theory and plot. And so that kind of, so I looked at, I did a historical survey of different movements, the three, you know, major movements that we see of uh, social and racial resistance to antebellum, South looking at abolition, um, then looking at the civil rights movement, and then the current movement. And I looked at the Christian opposition, so the 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 pro slavery arguments of Christianity, the pro uh, segregation arguments, and then I saw an interesting thread that can, that that's very similar to what we're seeing today. Wow! So one of the things that I you know that I as I was looking through some of the same information that you were referencing because I was the same way when when I first started to hear about critical race theory you know I didn't know what it was um can I read the definition of that critical race theory um is uh a framework in jurisprudence that examines society and culture as they relate to categorizations of race law and power in the United States of America It began as a movement in American law schools in the mid to late 1980s as a reworking of critical legal theory on race issues. As the word critical suggests, both theoretical frameworks are rooted in critical theory, a social philosophy which argues that social problems are influenced and created more by societal structures and cultural assumptions than by individual and psychological factors. I'll stop there. Thank you. I appreciate that, A. Um, to sort of give yeah, give a little bit of a definition and a backdrop to what Rasul was talking about. But yeah. I'm- but the thing about it, AJ, is that what what uh, Avery just did is more than what a lot of people have ever done <laughs> when they've responded to issues related to critical race theory. <laughs> they might look at each of those words, right, and deconstruct those words and talk about how they're anti-biblical, but won't even look at where it comes from. And which is something that I'm glad Rasul has been examining is when you have people trying to make make sense of of historic and contemporary anti-blackness instead of actually attacking the anti-blackness they attack the people who are trying to make sense of it and i think that's something that that's curious to me and i'd be interested in what russell um what your explanation might be as to why they would attack people who are trying to understand anti-blackness which of course is unbiblical instead of attacking the unbiblical nature of discrimination uh and and you know anti-blackness yeah that's a great uh summation um and i think that's the million dollar question right (laughs) like you know what what causes there to be so so i kind of alluded to the research i didn't say what i found so essentially what you see is two major moves, and these are specifically within the Christian context uh, that you see now in the 
slavery situation, I read the book um, Civil War is a Theological Crisis by Mark Knoll, which he basically examined the pro-slavery and abolitionist arguments at the time and looked at sermons and statements and, and you know, and looked at what how how these statements and arguments were being codified. Now, it's all. It can be easy to forget now or or for folks not to realize the abolitionists were, from a population standpoint, the same smallness as you think of critiques of anti-Blackness today. They were not the majority opinion at all. In fact, if abolition was the majority opinion, then slavery would have been abolished without a war. Right. Like um, most of the people in the South were overwhelmingly church going Christians and so or at least churchgoers. Right. Um, <laughs> Air you know, quotes. I, yeah, I, Air I, quotes. I ain't going to give them the Christian, you know, in terms of their self-identification. Right, right, right. Um, and and so, yeah, I think sometimes there's this nostalgic view of history that kind of looks at like abolitionists as like the majority of the Christian community or people, because that's a way to suppress some of the ugliness of the story. But no, they were the minority. They were the people in the street saying Black Lives Matter, basically. If, and how many of those are Christian today? Like, <laughs> that's right. the, or, you know, what percentage of the Christian community are in that group versus the percentage that aren't? That's the same kind of level of smallness that you have. That's why we can name them. You know what I mean? Frederick Douglass and Garrison, all these people, Harriet Tubman. So in any case, here's the first move. One, that Christian abolitionists were following the culture and not the Bible in their arguments um, that uh, that slavery was not uh, biblical. Um, and uh, And so that is one of the primary ways that, uh, you know, the argument was made was that, nah, this isn't. So like, I'll quote you one bishop. I mean, this is a, a pastor, James Henley Thornwell said, the church knows nothing of institutions of reason or the deductions of philosophy, except those reproduced in the sacred canon. She has a positive constitution in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Scriptures, and has no right to utter a single syllable upon any subject outside of that. And so basically he's saying, look, I don't know where y'all getting this foolishness from. The Bible clearly teaches that slavery is fine. And so you're getting these ideas from following the culture, not following the scriptures. Um, and the second one was that American slavery was based on a biblical doctrine of race. So the second argument was, hey, the Bible supports what we're doing. I'm just talking race-based chattel slavery. They're making the case that, that that's supported. So then you go to the civil rights era and you see, once again, the argument made by prominent evangelical leaders. Uh, Bob Jones Sr. I looked at and Dr. G.T. Gillespie, that one Christian civil rights activists were following the culture and not biblical doctrine. And then, you know, uh, two, that segregation was biblical. And, um, And in fact, what you start to see is this connection with particular strands of what it means by worldly or the culture. So this is what Gillespie said. The problem has also been complicated by the worldwide spread of Karl Marx's doctrine of internationalism and the classless society, combined with the vigorous propaganda of Soviet communism to bring about a world revolution and the breakdown of all national and racial distinctions and to affect the complete amalgamation or mixing of all races. Sound familiar? 
Mm-hmm. Gillespie is directly tying uh, issues of um, anti-racist work to communist or socialist ideology. And then their second argument is there's nothing to see here. There's no, there's no, uh, there's no problem uh, to confront. And that's essentially the same type of uh, arguments that we see today. Wow. Well, um, I don't know if it's more so of a question, but uh, it's interesting that you had came across that discovery because I came across that discovery as well. Uh, or a similar discovery. I came across the uh, Frankfurt School. Are you familiar with the Frankfurt School? Yes, that's the from critical theory emerges from them. Yeah, exactly. Right. So uh, part of part of um, part of the goal. Of, well, basically, the big goal of the Frankfurt School it was a think tank to uh, of uh, Hungarians primarily uh, uh, a segment of uh, uh, Eastern Europeans that ward against uh, Western Europeans and uh, uh, imperial and imperialism. And so, but because they were outnumbered, their uh, approach to uh, attack the uh, imperial Western European was to attack them via, uh, via uh, the classes and social order and not necessarily by the gun or by the bullet because they, 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 they couldn't do it that way. And so um, they had a, a, a think tank called the Frankfurt School, which then came out with the papers, uh, Critical Race Theory, of which then um, became after about 20, uh, that was in the 1930s. And they tried to integrate these philosophies in different areas of society and it wouldn't take, it wouldn't hold until many of them came over after World War II uh, in the 1940s to the 1950s, and they became, uh, many of these people became embedded into universities. And then when they became embedded into the universities, they started teaching critical race theory. And, well, no, they would have, they were teaching critical theory, not critical race critical theory. Critical theory, sorry, right. thank you. Right. Critical theory, which then broke out into uh, these different kinds of studies that we take kind of take for granted today in schools, Africana studies being one of them. It's not the only one, as I'm sure you know. Uh, but anyway, it became more popular to be uh, uh, proliferate. These philosophies became proliferated throughout the United States through colleges and universities during the uh, 1960s. Uh, and anyway, I just uh, I, w- I was I was waiting for you to bring that up. So I'm glad that you uh, brought it up. But it's interesting that you're saying that the guy who is this person that you say connected like. We- I, I, I mentioned Dr. Gillespie, a Presbyterian seminarian. Yes, thank you. So, Dr. Gillespie, of about circle what, what around what time did he? That was in the fifties. The sixties. Fifties. Uh, oh, fifties. Okay, cool. So that lines up to what it is that the the the, the timeline that I was that I was referring to. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, that's. Um, well, and just let me let me expound and kind of clarify because what I was saying was there's there's several things happening here. So, oh. um, there is this. Um, intellectual movement in Europe to um, basically critique. um, They're trying to understand why is oppression happening in in the world. They're trying to understand why do you have these elites that are exploiting the majority of the people who are poor. 
And uh, and Karl Marx, you know, comes up with this, you know, with, with his communist manifesto and the theory that basically Which is in it not is an analysis of forties, correct? Yes. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, yes. I'm just saying that was the, from from the industrial age and even before that. So so Marx kind of develops this. Um, so essentially, what the Frankfurt School does and and is they're trying to. Uh, critique the, the 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 reason why it's called critical theory is because many of the current day theories of the time very much echoed or assumed the 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 validity of the institutions that were built that they the society were built upon so institutions that oftentimes reinforced the marginalization or uh or, or oppression of the very people that they were in um, so then i say so I'm white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, and I say so, basically what you're saying. Well, yeah, well, at that point, it, I mean, we're talking, you know, like you said, Eastern Europe and whatnot before it goes over to, you know, the you know, WASP dynamic. But in any case, the point is that um, so there's this thread that's happening. But even when you look at the time period, 1840s manifesto starts to get popular in late 1800s, early 1900s. One of the biggest problems with this whole conversation in today, or even 50, 60 years ago, is the assumption that Black people, while they're suffering in, in bondage in America, completely, and like, I mean, Richard Allen leaves the, you know, St. George's Methodist Church in Philadelphia because they won't let them pray, um, you know, and they had segregated seating in the 1780s you know, almost, uh, you know, like 80 years before any of this is happening, there's a whole sense. I don't need Karl Marx to tell me that oppression is wrong. I don't need, you know, the, the Frankfurt School to, to, you know, to appeal to a Black Christian tradition that critiques the things that are happening around us, because they're just critique. The thing that they have in common is criticalness. But the thing that they don't have in common is origin or even shared analyses and things like that. But to people who tend to be in an established position, they have something in common in that they're coming for you and that they're critiquing you. Now, even so, it doesn't matter as much. So it's, you know, okay. the fact that they're different, they have differing, differentiating ideologies or worldviews or methodologies, all that matters is they're having a critique of society. And that similarity is enough to get people to, to put them all in, in the, the same, same pot, bucket. Yeah. And then, and especially, and what's the other thing that's happening in the 1950s is you have the McCarthyism Red Scare tactic. So you have a whole sweeping uh, paranoia. I mean, people bringing brought before Congress, uh, they're, you know, and, and testifying these things. So as, as someone sh shared with me this uh, essay, just to give you a, a sense of the disparity between what is being talked about. There's a, a, a young woman, uh, a scholar named Jane Castle's record. And she wrote it, uh, a paper called The Red Tagging of Negro Protests. The Red Tagging of Negro Protests. Mm. And she captures different points that people are making like this. If the NAACP isn't communistic, then why has it been working hand in hand with the communists on this desegregation thing? And so the, 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 the way that this kind of became denounced in the South in particular is by saying the NAACP the any you know Martin Luther King Jr., um, any of these civil rights activists were 
actually communist. Now, and she also mentions that in 1953, J. Edgar Hoover uh, was reviewing an FBI study of 5,395, so basically 5,400 American communists, and found that only 411 were Black. And he so and concluded that none of these efforts, you know, that of the Communist Party were directly intrinsically linked. But what would happen is people confuse correlation with causation. Yeah. So so there was a correlation of the fact that there were people who were resonating with or saw the I mean, from the very beginning, the very existence of race based slavery was used by Marxists to to critique to critique capitalism to say look at this this is terrible what they're doing it was used by the Soviets to critique democracy to say look at this this is terrible what they're doing but that didn't mean that those who were a part of those movements overall were primarily based in those arguments that you know so but that's but the strategy to align those two together and therefore reject them both because okay obviously communism is terrible and, right. and marxist theory is terrible so therefore the civil rights movement is terrible that that strategy has been a primary uh thing and that's and i think that that red tagging is is is, is way overstated and disproportionate to what the actual reality is now that's that's actually the 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 crux of what I want to really wanted to get into today, because what you just laid out is primarily culturally based. And so when it gets interwoven with the gospel, right? Listen, people in power want to preserve their way of life and their culture. That's human nature, right? You, you don't want someone from outside of your culture or way of life critiquing, right? The, the way you have designed your cultural structure, fine, whatever, but where it, it becomes problematic for people who are believers is then when it, if you say it's anti-capitalist, fine. If you say it's anti-American, which is still a little touchy, but it's still fine, right? But then when you go as far as to say it's anti-biblical, you know, it's like, for me, that's where it becomes problematic. And there's actually a book, and I reference it a lot. It's called 12 Lies That Hold America Captive by John Walton. And he talks about in um, the, the first couple chapters about how they say America is a Christian nation and things of that sort. Um, but in actuality, he says that um, what America likes to believe is not really, quote unquote, Christianity, but it's more of an American or a, a country folk religion where it's kind of a lot of these different things interwoven together, things like this, right? You know, people say, oh, you know, God and country and this, that, and the other, you know, God bless the military and all that, which are all great things, but they, they don't find their root or source in the, the God of scripture. So the, the question that I, I really want to ask you, Rasul, is, is it, I mean, we all know that it's nonsensical, but really the, is, is the crux of, the pushback that you're seeing, the, these hardened oppositions, they're not really based in historical fact as we've laid out. I mean, you can go through history and you see all these different you know, instances where you say, well, that's not true because of this and this and this. Yeah. Right. So this this hardened resistance when people right. who are being oppressed mention it, do you believe yeah. that it's based more so in the desire to want to preserve power because that is what i believe it is not yeah. necessarily wanting to preserve any sort of christian right. or biblical way of life yeah no that's a great question and and actually i'm glad you brought it up because i think oftentimes the backlash 
because it's not, I'm not to say, look, there is there a relationship between a kind of, uh, you know, praxis or, you know, even Marxist critique of, you know, of, of, of capital and what things happen in, in some of the especially current day, you know, criticisms. Yeah, there, there's, there's a correlation there. Um, the bigger problem, though, is the fact that instead of going back to Ava's point, instead of focusing on the crisis that currently is existing right now, both in every major uh, statistical category of how we would see human flourishing is disproportionately um, against black people, right? Instead of focusing on that or even asking the question, like why is that happening or what does the church do? there's an attack on the various responses in an attempt to shut that conversation down. So it's not like, let's shut that conversation down so we in, in favor of another conversation that we can have about anti-Blackness. It's, there's nothing to see here. There is no problem. And so, um, you know, I asked three things that I think are really important, regardless of how one sees the history or something like, you know, the Frankfurt School or not like that. To me, it's inconsequential to the to the bigger question is um, what is race? Is racism still a major problem? And is racism more than discrimination? Those are three questions. So. And when I talk about uncritical race theory, what, what I mean is that there's usually, so what is race? A lot of people, a lot of Christians just assume it's a biological reality, you know, that just like gender or something, and they will refute, like don't realize it's, a, it's, it's been socially constructed. Now when we go, okay, yeah, some people will go, yeah, it's socially constructed. In my discussion with Neil, he's like, yeah, I agree with that, but you don't agree. Okay, if it's socially constructed, by who, why, and to what effect, right? right. right? Like automatically, once you acknowledge social construction, then you also have to acknowledge that it was constructed as a caste system to to meet out benefits and privileges to people who looked a certain way and, uh, you know, according to the schedule. And that it was if it was socially constructed, then it means that the institutions of our society were developed with that con- to maintain that that that's that order, that racial order, that racial caste system. And so which means that it was baked into the cake, you know what I mean? Yeah. Which, um, and so then the second one is racism still a problem? Well, this is where we have a major divergence in this discussion because some will say, no, it's not a problem. It's, it's, this was a problem. It's been fixed and now it's been used to, to kind of become a label for everything, but it's not a problem. And, and that leads to the third of is racism more than discrimination. Um, and so for some, they want to say, look, how can you say that racism is real? Look at LeBron James, Barack Obama, Oprah, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and, and go like, how, you know, how is that possible that you're saying that? And it's like, well, first of all, uh, those are the three, those are the those three wise men. Those are the logos. I was on stream earlier this week. And it was like some Indian dude talking. And then for whatever reason, it was a stream that was like about black entrepreneurs. And for whatever reason, they asked the guy, hey, so who do you suggest that people like listen to? I'm like just in the audience or whatnot. And I was just like, "Uh, you know, whatever. But he's like, yeah, you know, so I think that the best role models are Barack Obama and LeBron James. (laughs) 
I was just laughing. I said, of course. This is the only <laughs> black people you know. <laughs> That's like if I said, you know, the best yellow people are Bruce Lee and Chairman Mao or something like that. It's just, I mean. Yeah, there's so many corners that race <laughs> obsession and that, that pervasive, you know, historic race obsession paints people into. And yeah. one of them is, for example, the vast majority of black millionaires in this country are businessmen. They're not LeBron. They're not people who, who peddle drugs or put balls in, in hoops or dance <laughs> on stages. So there are all kinds of, again, there's uh, multiple corners that these types of people paint themselves into. But I think it's just interesting that they won't even look at the foundation, the founding creed of our country is that all men are created equal. And I would really be interested in how it is that somebody who believes themselves to be a follower of Christ can believe a creed like that, but then see disparate outcomes going on right now and think that it points to something other than systemic marginalization. Because what, what ends up happening is a lot of people who say they're Christians, first of all, they won't align Christ with a lot of the uh, ideas about social parity that we're asking for. They'll, they'll, they'll just make general statements about the Bible and say, well, that's communist or socialist. But what would Jesus do, right? So that's the first problem. But the second one is right now we have all these, these different outcomes. And if you think all men are created equal and then you see disparate outcomes, what do you attribute these disparate outcomes to? And what they'll do is they'll say, well, Black people just don't work hard enough or they'll use, you know, they'll paint it a little rosier and say, well, circumstances have brought it about so that black people don't work hard enough. But the reality is, if all men are created equal, then the outcomes would be similar and they're not. Thanks so much, uh, Russell, for being on. There's so many questions, comments, et cetera, that, that I have here. Um, but one of the things I just wanted to uh, point out and get your responsive perspective on um, pertains to the definition of critical race theory that Avery pulled up. Um, and that is where you have a focus on systems and structures versus, you know, individuals, right? Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I, I found that curious. I had never, you know, I, I think mm. for me, it's always just been a, uh, a conscience and a justice and a biblical basis without needing critical race theory right. uh, to, um, you know, position me to determine that something is very wrong. Right. So that's actually the first time that I'd actually, you know, looked at a definition of critical race theory like that wasn't, you know, the the basis, I guess, of, of my notions of right and wrong. Right. Um, but I found it interesting when he pulled up that definition that um, there was a there seemed to be a, a contrast of, you know, systems and structures uh, versus individuals and individual thought. Uh, so I wanted to get your perspective on that as it pertains to like a faith-based kind of orientation. Yes. Uh, yeah. Great, great question. I'm going I'm to I'm hit this on a couple different fronts. It's funny because um, I actually just responded to a series of, of tweets yesterday about this. So like I went back and I, I looked at the discussion that I had with Neil in the, in the video, in the uh, podcast. And I noticed, I went and I looked at the different definitions that we use for critical race theory. Now, the one that was brought up uh, earlier was a, is a very solid gener general understanding of critical race theory, but that's not the one that people like to use who are antagonistic toward it. So this is the one that was used in my debate. This is from Tara Yasso. 
from uh, who's a theorist and academic, and specifically in the, in the education department. And her five, four points were racism is permanent and pervasive. All aspects of oppression relating to intersectionality must be fought simultaneously. The claims of objectivity conceal racism. So any attempt to say that somebody is being objective and not uh, in, in the way that they look at the world and that lived experience is necessary to understand racism. Now, this was the example. This was the definition that was used in the debate. Right. So obviously, from a Christian standpoint, there's several things that you look at and you go, mm, I don't know about that in the definition. First of all, racism is permanent. That's not a, 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 defin a definitive reality that I have to ascribe to in order to con con construct or con confront injustice. That all aspects of intersectionality uh, must be linked and, and, and fought simultaneously, which for them would include um, the LGBT uh, experience and in every facet and way that that means, right? Not just talking about fighting for the dignity of people as, as a Christian would and say, hey, nobody should be discriminated against on their job or, or beat up, right? Or killed because of there should be protection, equal protection under the law, but going further than that and in and, and its most kind of you know, um, progressive definitions of it. This is, and this is what they use. They say, see, this is what you mean. This is what you're bringing into the church. And I go, well, I, I don't know about that part of the definition too. And then objectivity conceals racism. Um, so that even claim to objective truth, well, obviously now you're getting to the bedrock of just Christian faith and doctrine, right? So these, so this is the definition I use from Delgado in uh, Stefanczyk. Um, that uh, in their book, Introduction to Critical Race Theory, that racism is ordinary, not aberrational. So ordinary is different than saying permanent. Ordinary is just saying it is not the exception to the norm. That it is a caste system that serves important purposes, both material, this goes to discrimination. You can't get that job or that house because I want somebody else to get it that looks like me, but also psychic, psychological, right? The sense of I, there's a value in me believing the idea of of white supremacy that is socially constructed that lived experience is necessary to understand racism and that the notion of race changes over time so i look at that definition and i go i'm comfortable with with those things but someone oftentimes will say see when you talk about lived experience matter that you're saying that because postmodern critical theory says that there's no such thing as objectivity and they can actually find somebody who like yaso who would make that claim but i'm not making that claim but then they'll say, but uh, essentially the, the claim that lived experience matters is essentially a postmodernist claim. And I go, well, no, it's not, because the Bible says that Jesus, the one you could say is omniscient, learned obedience through what he suffered. Right. Yes. That's experiential right. knowledge. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so how do you say that? But then the second part that I want to get to, and that is the objection to um to uh, appealing to systemic injustice. This was a major issue uh, in the discussion that I had with Neil and with others, so that they want to say, the minute you start talking about racism is uh, a systemic uh, problem in, a, in a, a problem of systemic injustice or structural issues, then one of the weaknesses of that is you lose the ability to, uh, to speak Christian truth into the reality because it is saying that a system can't repent 
right? Like a person can repent. And so when you start talking about a system, then now you're not giving human responsible responsibility. This is the mindset. Now this comes, I'm giving you this quote straight from Divided by Faith. This was Divided by Faith was a book that was written by two Christian um, sociologists who examine why is it that white Christians and black Christians see the issue of race so differently. And he looked at evangelicals. So he was looking at people that believe the same doctrine. And this is what uh, Smith and Emerson, who wrote that book, said. He was talking about white evangelicals. He explained that the disconnect happens in these three areas. For them, the race problem is one of more one or more of three main types. So this is kind of what the, one is prejudiced individuals resulting in bad relationships and sin. Two, other groups, usually African-Americans, trying to make race problems a group issue when there is nothing more than individual problems. Mm -hmm. So and then three, a fabrication of the self-interested, again, often African-Americans, but also the media, the government or liberals. So <laughs> amazing. Emerson saw, and again, this is over 20 years ago, right, that, right. that the, the dynamic was it, the only grid, the only toolbox in their toolkit culturally that they had to analyze current reality was to say it's individual only. And then for those who are trying to make claims otherwise, that they're being deceived by the media, the government, and by uh, troublemakers like Reverend Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson, who are uh, <laughs> exploiting um, this issue of race, or today you could say Black Lives Matter people. They're playing the race card. That's what this is. It's playing the race card. And now there's added another kind of theological or ideological layer to it to say, oh, and they're doing that because they're trying to undermine and dismantle society. But here's the response to that that I think in the divided by faith that pulls this out. Because where does where do black Christians get the idea that systemic injustice, let's just go back to slavery, right? What did it take to end slavery? It took laws to say people stop, you can't own people no more. It didn't take a revival to say, matter of fact, there had been two, you know, three revivals, the great revivals, right? Uh -huh. None of those things changed the system. Right. Okay, well, what, how do I think about that from a biblical grid? Like, is that is does that dismiss this sense of individual responsibility? No, because when I look in Exodus and I see when 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 God heard the cries and the oppression of the people, he, he sends Moses to deliver them, confront the governmental structure, and change the law so that they can be free. You know what I mean, and walk up out of there. And so, in the biblical mindset, what it means for Jesus to be, he's priest, prophet, and king. In evangelical circles, there's an overwhelming emphasis on the priest, the one who intercedes for the people on behalf of God, right? And, or intercedes for, to, you know, and like, and so I get my sins clean, wash me, cleanse me, make me right with God, help me to do that. That's what the role of the priest was in the Old Testament. And that's part of Jesus's role. The problem is that's not the only role, but in evangelicalism, it tends to be the only role. Mm. He was also the prophet. The prophet not only speaks truth to the people, he speaks truth to power. Right. And he had confronts someone like Pontius Pilate, 
Or like Herod, when John the Baptist lost his head, he's like, look, you're doing wrong. You need to repent. Mm -hmm. I don't care that you're in a position of power. I don't care that you are a king because I serve a greater king. So there's a speaking truth to power part. And then there's the king. The king was supposed to represent God and his just rule over people so that we see David and Solomon as the epicenter of kingly rule at the height of, 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 of Israel. And in that kingly rule, we see that he is a picture, he's a foreshadowing, he's a preview of the type of rule that Jesus will have and come back that ties us all the way back to Genesis chapter one, when he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and have dominion. Part of what it means to be made in the image of God is for us to rule. And that's a structural thing. So what it also means, so we need to apply all three aspects to this issue. So yes, even though we can say that there's structural systemic injustice and inequality, that that is completely consistent with a worldview and a perspective that holds people accountable to, for sin. Um, it just also recognizes that there's multiple fronts that we have to address the issue, not just one. And we see this in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Wow, that's powerful, Rasul. And it it really speaks again to the to the piece that is like, this is, I, like, it's gonna sound not like I'm not saying what I'm saying, but in, in terms of we have to take this out of the realm or simultaneously out of the realm of just like Christianity, faith, churchy stuff. And we have to sort of allow it to be applied in the broader culture. And so it's like, like what you just said, like you could have a revival, you could have a bunch of people that repent and still things still don't change. You know, I, I, I liken that too in acts when Peter, you know, God rolls out the blanket. He says, don't call clean without, you know, don't call unclean without made clean. Peter shows up at Cornelius's house. And the first thing he does is insult the guy and his family. And this is a guy who walked with the Messiah for years and he still walks in. Yeah, you know, normally I wouldn't even be associated with you people. I'm like, yo, like, so God can be he, he, like, he can do a bunch of stuff in your midst and you and your heart still don't fully turn or fully changes, which is why I think your, your point in terms of that's when God has to speak not only to the person, but he has to speak to the power structure that that person is associated with. And I think that that is why when the argument is made that this is just a anti-biblical thing, I think ignoring the cultural aspects of it, I think is ignorant and I think it's detrimental to us at becoming undivided, so to speak. Because I, I do know that book that you were referencing by, I think his name is Smith, his last name is Smith. Yeah, um, Smith and Emerson, yeah, divided yeah. by faith. Um, but yeah, it's like for us to become undivided, we have to be willing to examine the, the cultural aspects of all of the things that divide us, not just the biblical aspects. And I'm gonna use one further example and, you know, as we sort of come around third base here, you know, there was a brother that, you know, a, a lot of us know he's a he's a Christian rapper and he tweeted about a year ago He and he's in an interracial marriage and he tweeted and he said, hey, you know, white people need grace. Black people need grace. We're all sinners. So let's just kind of leave this CRT stuff alone. Um, and I just remember thinking to this brother again, because that is a microcosm of. Yes, there's a biblical component. We all do need the grace of the Most High, yes, to wash the sinfulness that's in our heart. 
I'm in no disagreements there. But you know what I thought, and I was going to respond, but I said, Lord, this is not a conversation for Twitter. He's in an interracial marriage. He's Caucasian. His wife is African-American. I said, but when, you're, when you have children, what will the culture call your children? And that's where you realize there's a cultural component, right? He's a Caucasian male with an African-American female wife. When you have children, if your children wanted to say, hey, I'm white, if they just wanted to try that, the culture would completely stomp that out, Christian or non-Christian. And that's where we have to realize there is a very large cultural component that makes us see these things so differently. And that's what I loved about that book. It's like the, the, the biblical knowledge does not change totally the way that I'm going to see stuff because my culture is a part of who I am, right? When we look up culture and we do studies on culture, you realize culture, because it's so interwoven into the nature of the person, it sort of makes you partly who you are. And part of that is seeing things the way in which you see them, even things like disparity and oppression and injustice. You will still view them through a particular cultural lens, even if you are a follower of Christ, someone who loves God, that cultural lens will still be over your eyes and you'll still look at this thing a cultural way. And I've, I've come to realize a lot of it for, for people like that, it's not even malicious. They just have a particular cultural lens that they see it through and they're just like, what's the problem? Things are, you know, no, nothing to see here. What are you doing? We just all love God and sing. I'll go back to my mansion. You go back to the hood and then we'll come back to another Christian meeting again and sing some more songs for Jesus. It's like, nah, there's some other things going on that you need to be made aware of. And if you're my brother, at a minimum, you'll at least understand. Even if we don't agree on every point, you should at least say, you know what? Wow, I do understand now what you're saying. And that's, for me, the, that's the frustrating part because if you don't agree is one thing, but to claim ignorance, like you don't really understand what I'm talking about, it's kind of like, bro, wh- wh- are you not walking on the same planet that I am? You know what I mean? So, AJ, you're, you're talking about gaslighting, AJ. And, and you know, I think that for, for the whole panel, for everybody here in this discussion, um, I'm starting to conclude that we need to make a, a difference between the people who are of goodwill and people who aren't. There's some people who sincerely want to understand. And one way we can tell is by the questions that they ask. I don't see what you guys are talking about is not a question. And so do you really want to understand? Um, Do you really want to ask yourself, what is it about me that causes me to resist these notions at every turn? Is it an issue of power? Is it the fact that I have been privileged by a society that has actually been structured this way and I'm fighting every way that I can to resist um, uh, that that whole uh, pyramid of privilege um, with the soft foundation coming down on me. And so I don't, I personally, I'd love to hear from everyone, but I personally don't know how much longer I'm going to engage people of bad will. Um, I don't like to, to determine motives. I really don't, but I can only go by what, what I see and what, how people respond. And so are we even wasting our time talking to people who resisted every turn and gaslight you and turn it on you. And, and it's, it's African-Americans uh, problem that they were uh, systemically marginalized. And now it's African-Americans problem for bringing it up. Yeah. And I think to, to add to that, I think, um, you know, we had a recent sermon on uh, at my church uh, that talked about culture versus covenant, right? 
now the sermon didn't go into a lot of specific examples of what was considered culture, right? But what I find is that culture ends up meaning by default uh, a couple of sins that a conservative constituency finds sinful, homosexuality and abortion. That, that ends up being culture, right? So when, when we start talking about culture versus covenant from a church context, what I find is that what we're really meaning is just a couple of sins that, that oh, by the way, have a very political tie to them. And, and culture doesn't extend to meaning laws and institutions that have been set up that maintain a certain non-equity amongst people that look different ways. It, it doesn't seem to extend culture when we talk about it in a church context. And this includes Black church context, as well as sometimes a white church context, right? Like, yes, black evangelicals may be a bit more open to talking about, you know, social justice and things like that in in some contexts. But then there also seems to be this tension with uh, liberal ideology, right? Because it's associated with certain sins. And so the closest that even black evangelicals feel like they can get to choosing covenant over culture is to to vote in a more conservative capacity, right? Because culture is two or three sins, right? Um, so I, I find that very interesting. I also found it very interesting. I don't know if you saw the Uncle Tom documentary on Netflix. I think it's Netflix. Um, could be Amazon Prime, but Uncle Tom, it seems it's a documentary where you have a lot of prominent black conservatives uh, speaking about the fact that structural racism isn't really a thing because look at me, you're Herman Cain's, you know, um, Republicans, Republicans, not conservatives, Republicans. Okay. Republicans. That's a broader discussion as to how those two get interchanged, but yes, we'll, we'll keep it to a party for now. Uh, They call themselves conservatives on, on the, in the documentary, but you can extend it to also they conflated that with being associated with the Republican Party. So, a- again, you know, when you come in that context, you have individuals that are black also citing the narrative. Look at me. Look at what I've done. I worked hard. This is where I am. So how can racism exist? How can you say it's structural and embedded and systemic. You have a a black brother up there as well that says he used to be Democrat and liberal, right? The two are getting conflated in the documentary. He talks about how he's a believer and he says that someone challenged him to look at the liberal or democratic platform and to also look at the conservative or Republican platform. And he said that's when he had his epiphany that he was wrongly aligned politically, and that he should align himself with the conservative, again, conflated with the Republican Party. 
So, you know, I, I, and, and, and these things about, you know, racism existing or not existing when you have, you know, individuals that are of a certain race because they feel like they have come through as an exception, they've been able to succeed. They give this basis or notion that, well, it can't be systemic, you know, it, it can't be, um, structural. Right. And, I, I think that that's interesting, right? It just like the documentary, I definitely, you know, I watched it because I like to hear, you know, where both sides of arguments are coming from. But, you know, in that case, it, they they also had that, that you know, Christian brother, <laughs> you know, in there as well. And so that's, you know, I thought that that was interesting, that that was his conclusion, that my only possible choice because of culture versus covenant, in essence, or my spiritual beliefs, is to vote and go Republican because of that. Um, so just, you know, two posits for thoughts, if you have any specific feedback, <laughs> Rasul. But um, yeah, th- those are my thoughts on culture versus covenant as it, you know, plays out sometimes in sermons, as well as in this recent documentary, Uncle Tom. Uh, <clears throat> Yeah. So I wanted to say that, uh, well, one thing I wanted to do is put a definition of culture. And uh, I think we, well, a lot of times we assume we read into uh, this term culture and we relate it to um, certain kinds of uh, uh, behaviors that certain groups of people do as if, and, 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 and preferences that they have and, as if that's culture and it's not culture. Um, even like with the term race, uh, we use race as a labeling of shades, which is done, which originates from a guy named Johann von Blumenbach. Uh, and then you can sprinkle uh, Charles Darwin and his uncle in there too, for good measure. But um, race actually refers to uh, nation and bloodline uh, and bloodlines depending on where you originate from, it's, uh, they have a genetic variety. Part of that manifestation is skin color. But race is not exclusive to skin color. It's just, it just means bloodline. So you can have multiple races and they all share the same hue. Nonetheless, uh, the, the term culture, it refers to the, uh, it's a blueprint and instructions on how to live that gets passed down from father to child or mother to daughter or mother to son, father to son, so that a, so that a family, so that a lineage can exist in the world and not die out. That's really what culture is. And if you think of the term to cultivate or a culture in a petri dish or scientific term, it's the same thing. It doesn't mean rapping and eating sweet potato pie. It's the reasoning behind doing it is the mm-hmm. uh, in order to pass messages down or this is the food that's available. And we and that is that that is the that's the true definition of culture. Uh, but with that said, I think uh, to directly answer your question, Eva, about do you just leave these people alone and gaslighting what I my view is that I think, and I'd be interested in Rasul's uh, uh, opinion on this, um, but when I listen and I hear all of this, and you know, I hear this, this, this dissatisfaction of the white evangelical Christian of not caring about your problems, I think that 
there's a bit, I think we care too much about um, what white people think. Um, if we look at, I'm not trying to veer us off anywhere. If we look at the Christian doctrine of discovery, I think that's a perfect example of this law that was used by the Pope within Europe, uh, aligning himself with European kings in order to carve out the world. And they use this term Christian as a uh, card to go around and basically kill people and lay claims to lands all throughout the world mm-hmm. by planting they fl- their flag. And the, 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 the only rules they had were you can't take a, you, you cannot take a land that was already taken by anybody in this group. And you also can't take a land of people that are, quote unquote, Christians. That's it. Anybody else, they didn't even exist. They were savages, so on and so forth. And um, that same mindset is what establishes common Christianity that we know today, right now. That's what allowed the, the quote unquote, transatlantic slave trade and all of that. It came from these same people and they built these churches. And these churches are, are, are for the most part, with some exceptions, Russell, I hope that you're the exception, but with some exceptions, <laughs> most of churches are, are no more than uh, state-sponsored soothsayers to, to calm down the, uh, the population from ref- making reforms and transformation to, uh, to, 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 to better our lives and to improve our cultures. That's what many of these churches are. And so for us to go back and forth trying to say, hey, brother, love us, love us. Like we see the black, like the NBA wearing this Black Lives Matter jerseys and love us on the back and whatnot. It's 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 so juvenile. It's so childish. And I believe that it is a form of arrested development. Mm. culturally. And I do think that it's something that gets used by people who have that, who have interests that are against Republicans um, and uh, uh, and are against certain people who are dominating this society. They come in and then they use us as black people. They try to relate to our problems they, by, and, and that presses our buttons. So we end up going and doing and aligning ourselves with these people who have these other motives and we end up doing their bidding. Which is what mm. I think was happening with the civil rights movement, quite frankly. I think that that's happening. I think it happens now. You know, you have this American descendants of slaves uh, um, um, paradigm shift that, that has been going on. And it's very clear with ADOS, for the most part, for the most part, the ideology is very clear. Black Americans that originate from here are a distinct group of people. That's pretty much where it starts and where it ends. But what it is, is that you have other people that come in and say, oh, these people are have conservative Russian talking points. And if you if you study uh, the, the hashtags and whatnot, you'll see that, oh, these people are actually agents for Russia, which funny is, is <laughs> it's just it's funny because when you get into Russia and whatnot, that 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 goes back to. Can I can I can I jump in real quick on the uh, cultural thing? When- sure, 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 sure. So anyway, that's that's just. What it is that my, my my view is, I think that we expect a little bit too much from white people. And I think that okay. we need to take more responsibility and learn who we are more and just and, and work to to better our own our own existence in the light of Christ, quite frankly. 
Because these people have shown time and time again that they're okay with their foot on our neck. So anyway, respond and shoot me down, whatever you got. No, man. Go yeah, ahead, go ahead, um, Russell. I would love to hear what your what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, I mean, you know, Tina, you know, I, I love the way you succinctly kind of summarize this issue and that idea of culture versus covenant um, and the oftentimes kind of... Uh, so in the in my and then this relates to what I wrote in uncritical race theory. So one of the things that uh, was a thread that Mark Knoll pulled on and that I had uh, kind of discovered that is part of the epistemological framework of evangelicalism. And what I mean, let me break down what I mean by that. So there are ways of thinking, kind of plausibility structures that we just kind of assume are just true and that even go underneath, the, you know, and this is some of, you know, what I think, uh, you know, was being said by Avery earlier, like that underneath the actual things that we see, like the foods that we eat or the the laws that we make, there's, a, there's, there's these notions, these beliefs. And there's one in particular that is a particular strand of a post-enlightenment concept that uh, Noel touched on, and I think very much relates to this issue, called Scottish common sense realism. Scottish common sense realism was a, a kind of, in a, many ways, a reaction to the Enlightenment. It argued that understanding the world and everything in our Bibles was not really that complicated. It was pretty simple, and it could be accomplished by regular folk without any need or appeal to you know, kind of highfalutin academic theories or sociological complexity. Um, it was a way of kind of responding to the ever-growing, um, you know, kind of complexity of the world and saying, and people kind of sometimes want to push back against that and go, it ain't that deep. It's simple. What that did was create a type of approach, an anti-intellectualism that also pushed against um, the value of complexity in order to understand the world around me. And so things just got very compressed to say, look, it's not deep, there's sin, there's holiness, choose God, choose holiness and move on. Anything outside of that is the culture trying to overly complicate or, or dilute the potency and the, the clarity of God and his word. That stream, if you think about it, is still running very much through um, a lot of Protestantism in America. And part of it is important to say, it's a particularly American uh, distinctive. Um, one of the things that Noel does in his book is he actually looks at the international Christian dialogue around slavery as people from Europe in particular were, were, were peering into this, this thing. I mean, you know, it's, it's a global event, a war that killed more Americans than any other war since um, was, was, was happening. And over this, and people are making these theological, you know, statements about the veracity of slavery. So I think one thing that I draw from that is there's a tendency to oversimplify, especially when it comes to issues of, uh, of complex social interaction. And, and it, and it kind of just makes people feel better to just, and we kind of just have lean on that, that tradition of just going, all I need is my Bible, you know what I mean? And the Holy Spirit, and I can understand everything and anything. And what people do is they ultimately miss 
<laughs> they overstate the doctrine of sufficiency of scripture. Like the sufficiency of scripture means that this, the scriptures are sufficient for life and godliness. It isn't saying it's sufficient for you to be able to learn how to do a root canal. Like if my doctor, if I went to a dentist and they were like, yo, just want you to know, I did four years of uh, biblical studies. I went to the top seminaries and I know uh, my Bible upside down. I've memorized every verse. So are you comfortable with me doing your root canal? I'm like, nah, <laughs> I need somebody to have medical you know, experience because part of what the what knowledge that God has given us access to is not just derived from Genesis to Revelation. Although, and, and Genesis to Revelation affirms that, right? If you look at Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, all that stuff. But so when we talk about the culture, you know, there's this overly simplistic. One of the things that books that have been really helpful for me is Andy Crouch's book, Culture Making, where he analyzes this idea of the culture. And, and, and the, 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 somehow, like you said, this, 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 um, this very truncated view of culture that basically looks at, you know, uh, what you could say is maybe some liberal ideas or concepts or things that don't agree with the church and then go, that's culture. But the reality is it's all culture, the macaroni and cheese, the fried chicken, the tacos, as well as the ideas and the theories, the, the common sense Scottish realism and the government and the polit political structure. I mean, think about it. We don't even you go to start a, a church. Right. And you have to fill out paperwork for it to be a nonprofit 501c3. And that's culture. Like that's 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 a very specific way of being that that we don't even think about. If I or you know, you went to a college where you started a organization and it had to have a president, a vice president, a treasurer, right? They're not doing that in China when they start organizations, they're not doing that in other parts of the world, but because our democratic institutions shape the way we think that things ought to run, it actually shapes the way that we also think about doing things, voting and all that stuff. And so culture is very expansive. But the thing, the other thing that I loved about what Andy said, he said that oftentimes, and this is an, also another great book called To Change the World by Dr. James Hunter. Um, and he basically analyzes Christian theories of culture change, um, both conservative and progressive. And he says that they're ultimately wrong most of the time because they assume that all I need to change is individuals, or all I need to change is institutions, or all I need to change is ideas. And he kind of looks at all three and go, you need to change ideas, institutions, and individuals, and also see yourself as part of the thing that needs to change, right? Like there's stuff that we have imbibed, there's stuff that we ha that have shaped our perspective as well. But ultimately what Andy does in his book, Culture Makers, he says that all culture change happens slowly, happens on a small scale and it's very unpredictable so you there's all this charge of like we're going to change the culture bring it back to god and it's like <laughs> do you realize like none of us knew think about how disruptive smartphones are think about how disruptive social media nobody saw that coming nobody was talking about in 2000 that every american is going to have a smartphone and everybody's going to be on this thing called facebook because it didn't even exist you know what i mean and then look at how something like remember um MySpace, <laughs> I had to oh, man. think about it. There was a time when MySpace dominated, right? Uh -huh. And then Facebook came around and ate it up. You know <laughs> what I mean? And culture changes. It's and my point is, it's 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 fragile. It's it's it, and and a lot of times conspiracy theorists make it out to be too complicated or too simple to figure out. And it's like 
yo, nobody can kind of, nobody has that amount of control other than God to pull the strings to make all the things happen that people want to believe. So yeah, I'm sorry, that was a bit of a tangent on all these different fronts, but I think um, it is important for us. So so going back to this thing, so it, it affects this issue of race because I think people desire for overly simplistic view. That tweet that you talked about, you know what I mean? People want to just go, it's just, can't we all just get along? Right, Isn't right. it as simple as Rodney King? And, and the reality is that I need to lean on ideas and frameworks to help me think about this. Yeah. In, a, in the same way that I need to lean on medical expertise to help me think about how to live healthily. You know what I mean? And, um, and that I think, if I come in from the standpoint of asking more, more questions than I seek to answer, then perhaps uh, that will help me to navigate. Because there are various pressures. The last point I'll, I'll just add to this, you know, from what Avery was saying in, in light of um, the the various points of competing interests that in, are involved. Um, you know, one of the th one of the uh, points <laughs> that some make in critical race theory, um, and again, it's not necessarily one that one has to assume or uh, believe is true or not, but that only change racial changes have only happened when they actually have benefited the majority culture. So when they look back at the civil rights movement, for example, and look at, for example, affirmative action. You know who benefited the most from affirmative action? White women. White women benefit uh -huh. the most, you know. If you uh, <laughs> you and, had and that so cocked you, and loaded, even. <laughs> <laughs> and um, if you look at these various policies, even it's interesting to look at the erosion of the Negro leagues and black communities, and like a lot of things that you know were exploding in in, in significance and 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 self kind of direction in the black community that essentially got or the 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 gains of those things were erased in integration not to say that i prefer a legal structure in which segregation is a law but what i am saying is you do admit it was that i'm just messing around uh, mm -hmm. i say that you admit it i, I was joking <laughs> but i am saying that it, you would be mistaken if you didn't think that there were competing notions for, and some people do benefit from advocating for there was infiltration by the Russian government in uh, in different pro-black uh, resistance movements. Mm -hmm. There was like it just it, it's true like right. because it's like yo if I'm trying to create wedges in America we saw this with the um with the uh, the 2016 campaign they look back and some of the Russian um, you know, advertisements, they was going everywhere. It was, it was blue lives matter. It was black lives matter. Cause all they wanted to do was so discord to kind of undermine uh, confidence in the democracy. And so I think, yeah, we have to be aware that people have a lot of ulterior motives and that that's complicated, but we also have to stay on our square and stay focused and, um, and, and realize that we're part of this country, whether, you know, this is if we decide to stay here and try to build it into something that we can value for ourselves. So I'm sorry, I, it went in a lot of different ways, but that question of culture was is, is huge. No, no, I brother, I really, I really appreciate that aspect because again, you, and again, it just, I'm, I'm going to keep reiterating this. You, you said it in the debate and you've been saying it, you know, today is like, I think the wanting to ignore the extra quarter biblical activity that go on in these discussions, I think is just foolish on our part as the body of Christ. 
Um, and so when you just said, you know, to some people, what you said may sound heretical. If you say, you know, you know, there's more beyond Genesis to Revelation that we got to incorporate. You know, some folks are like, that's heresy. You know, stone this brother. And it's like, no, there are some other things that we need to look at when we're having these types of discussions. The Bible is our starting point. Right. But there are other things that, that I should incorporate that would broaden my scope and make me a little bit more well versed when having these types of discussions. You know, there's a really good uh, paper that was written by Texas A&M um, about culture and that they just they, that they summed up a lot of these discussions so succinctly and says, you know, culture incorporates symbols, heroes, values, practices, behavior like those are the tenets of any culture. They weren't even specific to anyone. They were like, if you look at a culture, you can peel it down to these five layers and then they just kind of go into it. And I think that reading the Bible, having biblical knowledge, studying church history, all of those things, which are great, which is, you know, some of the things that I do on my own still doesn't change my values or my behavior or, you know, it is the Holy Spirit if I allow him in to those areas of my heart that will change my values and my behavior, you know what I'm saying, and my practices. And so I think opening the door to the cultural part of this discussion, I think gives the Holy Spirit leeway to then come in and make those changes. And I think that we, you know, our resistance, like I even love the, the point that Avery brought up about the Christian doctrine of discovery. We still see vestiges of that today because people have refused to open up their heart to the cultural discussion, right? Things like saying so-and-so was a man of his day. Well, that just means you're unwilling to open up your heart to the cultural part of this discussion. You got to have that cultural part. You got to be willing to say, yes, I, you know, accepted Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, but I still had some very, very poor cultural practices that God needed to come in and change, right? Those are two different conversations. Um, and so, again, for, you know, everyone listening, I just want to, you know, as we kind of, and we went a little long today, but we do appreciate Russell for his endurance. Um, and we hope that you, if you stuck with us to the end, that these things added, you know, as the scripture says, the hope that they added to your faith, right? When the Bible talks about add to your faith, patience and add this. Well, we hope that some of the things that we discussed today add to your faith and have built you up. Don't feel like this is because the enemy will use this as a way to divide the body of Christ, which is what he has been doing. But I think that if we are willing to open up our hearts to this discussion, I believe that like Isaiah in the book of Isaiah, where it talks about how those of the house of Jacob have turned their swords into plowshares, right? We can, we can turn things that were weapons of destruction into things of weapons of cultivating and building together. Um, so this is not something that is out, out of God's purview. Like what, what race, what are we going to do about that? You know, it's like, no, th this is something that, you know, listen, we, we'll deal with it and we'll cross it and we'll be stronger for it. So Ladies and gentlemen, we do thank you. Rasul, please, we're going to put um, in the show notes the links to the articles, um, Critical Grace Theory, as well as Uncritical Race Theory. We want you guys to uh, go check those out. Um, so, and if you got the time, go look at Rasul's YouTube series. I actually checked out your In Pursuit of Jesus where you're traveling around. It's pretty dope, man. That's probably what keeps that beard so jet black, man. I'm a little jealous. I, I got all this gray going on. This brother is sitting here, <laughs> sitting there with that jet black over there. But please um, drop your handles, drop where people can come if, if they want to get some more of what you're doing and how they yeah. want to connect with you. Um, how could they do that? 
Yeah. Uh, so you can go to rasulberry.com that has both the, um, that has everything, the one shop, one stop shop that has uh, the articles, uh, the video documentary series, as well as the podcasts and sermons uh, that um, I've done as well, all in one place, rasulberry.com. Also, uh, love for you to follow me on Twitter uh, at Rasulberry. Um, and so you can, you know, just kind of get in touch as I, you know, inter interact with folks there that way. Um, and then uh, IG, uh, Russell B. I just finished or tomorrow, because today is the 27th. So I got two more posts to go. I've, I've done a Black History Month post every day of the month, which I don't think I'm gonna do that again. Um, that was a lot of work, but because uh, I was mostly writing and editing those, but um, uh, myself, but yeah, so you can stay in touch with me those ways. Uh, podcasts, where you're from, uh, .net, uh, is something we, right now, uh, we're about to launch season two. Got some exciting guests. Uh, Avery mentioned the Doctrine of Discovery. I'm having actually Mark Charles, uh, the Native American, uh, you know, uh, writer, historian, who actually was the one that introduced me to that concept. Wow. Uh, he's one of the many people that I, I talked to on season two of the podcast. Wow. Um, and, and including Lecrae. So I'm looking forward to that as well. <laughs> so you can check that out. So yeah, those are, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Hey, listen, thank you. I don't sound so crazy, huh? <laughs> <laughs> no. Thank you. No, definitely, man. Thank you so much. Um, and so y'all know if we're talking about CRT, we're talking about the doctrine of discovery, or we're just talking about keeping it a hundo in the body of Christ. Y'all know we're going to keep God in the mix. So for Eve, Avery, Tina, this is AJ saying peace. Peace. Yeah. Peace out. They the ones who done left the yard. When they come in Sunday, rep hard. Sitting on no fun in their squad. There they go, they the sons of God. Sunday rap hard, sit on no fun in their squad.